You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk. Our guest today is Tom Wainwright. He's the Britain editor of The Economist. And he's in Dallas today to discuss his new book, his first, Narconomics, How to Run a Drug Cartel, a fascinating study that analyzes the illegal industry through the eyes of an economist. And Tom was The Economist Mexico City correspondent from 2010 to 2013, where he also covered Central America and the Caribbean. Welcome. Thank you. Next month, the UN will host a special assembly to address the increasing global drug problem. What is on the agenda, and do you have any optimism that there will be any successful shift in policy that will help turn the corner on this growing problem? Well, in terms of the agenda, I think probably the the single biggest item that people are going to be discussing is is all the legalization stuff that's going on, because that represents a really huge, huge change in, in drug policy. As you know, here in the States, there are now four states that have legalized marijuana, not just for medical purposes, but for recreational purposes. And soon we're going to see Canada doing the same thing. That will be the first G7 country to really legalize nationwide. Uruguay has already done this, and their program's coming in this summer. I think that's going to be the really big item on the agenda, because it so clearly flies in the face of the UN conventions that these countries have signed up to. In theory, all of these countries have agreed that selling drugs should be a criminal offense, and yet here we are, and it's being taxed and sold legally. So... I think that's probably going to be the single biggest sort of point of contention. Who's attending this meeting? Is it a special summit? It's a special assembly, and in theory, representatives from all the signatory countries, which means virtually every country in the world. It's quite a big deal. The last time they did this was nearly 20 years ago. And since then, I think things have changed. The last time they did this, in fact, the official subtitle or name of the gathering sort of slogan was a drug-free world, we can do it. And since then, consumption of almost all drugs has gone up very dramatically. And I think that although this year we're not going to see a sort of radical shift at the UN level, what we probably will see is a recognition among more countries that the idea of a drug-free world is probably optimistic at best. And I think there may be more recognition that what we need to do is regulate the drug problem and perhaps introduce more in the way of harm reduction measures. So clean needle sharing, that kind of stuff. There may be a bit more language about that. Um, And move it out of the criminal court system. Well, in some countries, yeah. And there are places like Portugal, famously, has decriminalized drug possession and and drug use. That's, you know, people seem to think that that's going reasonably well over there, just the idea that drug users should be treated as patients rather than criminals. And there are more and more states also in the U.S. doing that, at least with marijuana. So I think that's the kind of thing they'll be talking about. I wouldn't expect a huge change, though, because the conventions which enforce the prohibition of illegal drugs have to be changed unanimously. And there is precisely no chance that the likes of Russia, Iran, Indonesia, China, are going to sign up for a kind of Colorado-style legalization initiative. We're not going to see anything dramatic like that. Well, I really found your book interesting, and now I feel like I could run my own drug cartel after reading it. But um, <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> but a strategy that has been tried time and time again is the eradication. Afghanistan, other countries, so certainly in South America. And yet you say that and, and demonstrate why it really doesn't have any effect on the street price. Walk us through those economics. Well, it's a real puzzle for economists because the idea of eradicating, um, let's say we look at cocaine, the idea of eradicating the coca plants is a very straightforward economic idea. It's that if you cut into the supply of a product, the price is going to increase. And if the price increases, fewer people will take the drug, fewer people will buy the product. And it sounds like it makes sense, and it kind of does make sense, but in effect, that's not what's happened. Over the past few decades, we've seen quite big increases in the amount of coca leaf being destroyed through these programs in which they drop weed killer on plants, uproot them by hand. And yet the price of cocaine, the retail price here in the States, has hardly changed at all. It's it's hovered around sort of $150 per pure gram for the past couple of decades. And people uh, have been wondering why this is. And 
the reason is really that the the price of coca leaf is so tiny in comparison with the finished price of cocaine on the streets in the States that even if you do manage to drive up the price of coca leaf, it does very little to the final price of cocaine. Coca leaf in Colombia, to the amount of leaf that you need to make a kilo of cocaine costs about $400 in Colombia. That kilo of cocaine on the streets of the United States costs about $150,000. So even if you succeed in doubling the price of the coca leaf from 400 to 800, and even if you add all of the extra cost onto the final product to the consumer, you're only increasing the cost of that final product by $400 out of $150,000. It's, it's almost nothing. Or to look at it at the gram level, you know, you're, you're increasing the price of a gram from $150 to $150.40. And that's what makes it so hard to have people, farmers convert to another product. Well, yeah. I mean, they, it's very difficult to make them convert because there, there are programs underway to get the farmers interested in uh, growing other crops like, you know, tomatoes or... or Pomegranates in Afghanistan. Right, exactly, exactly. And you, you can do that, and there's some success in doing that, but the trouble is that the markup involved in the drugs business, whether it's cocaine or heroin, is so gigantic that it's very easy for the cartels to come back and then say, well, okay, we'll, we'll pay you a fraction more for growing the coca leaf or the opium poppy. And they can very easily outbid the tomato business or the chicken business or whatever else they're interested in. And even if that does drive up the price of the coca leaf or the opium poppy by a fraction, it has very little impact on the final price in, in the retail country. And the, the comparison that I make in the book is with the market for paintings. It's like saying, if you want to drive up the cost of a, a painting, a work of art, you might say, well, the main ingredient of that painting is paint. So let's drive up the cost of a box of paints from $50 to $100, and that will make the cost of this million-dollar painting double as well to $2 million. Of course it doesn't. I mean, it has almost nothing to do with the price exactly. of the painting. And it, exactly the same thing is at work with cocaine and with heroin. That's why it doesn't work. Now, when you're running a company, one of your most important issues is to get the right skilled labor. So how do cartels look at that? Well, it's tough for them. I mean, it's one of the big problems they face, actually, these sort of human resources problems. I mean, they organize quite big groups sometimes, uh, cartels, depends on the cartel, but they can have several thousand members. And they have a very, very high turnover of staff because, as we know, they so frequently get murdered or if they're not being murdered, they're being arrested. So they get through a lot of people and the trouble that compounds this for them is that, of course, you can't advertise for a new member of staff very easily. You can't put an ad in the paper saying wanted a new drug trafficker or you can't search LinkedIn for the best hitmen out there. And so they have real problems solving this deficiency of, of human resources. But fortunately for them, we've come up with the perfect solution, which is prison. Because in prison, we get together hundreds or thousands of young men with nothing to do, with no job, with criminal records. We put them all together in the same place. And we say to the cartels, OK, here are these guys. You've got them for several years. Take your pick. And the truth is that, especially in countries like Mexico, where the cartels really run jails in a way that it's hard to conceive of here living in the rich world. So one cartel might be just in one prison. Exactly, yeah. And in a country like, say, El Salvador, where I, I went around one of the prisons there, the prisons are semi-formally given to different gangs. And the idea is to avoid conflict, because if you've got gang members from different gangs in the same jail, they might be likely to fight more. But the upshot is that each jail is effectively run by one gang or another. And if you're not a member of the gang when you go in, then you certainly will be by the time you leave. So how do they structure it, though, in some of these cartels where you know who is stealing and how do you handle that so that there is really control over, over it? Well, it depends on the cartel in question. Some prison gangs have come up with quite elaborate sort of uh, constitutions to try and get around the, these problems. There's one example that I give in the book of a prison gang 
based in California here in the States called La Nuestra Familia. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a mainly Mexican gang for both Mexican citizens and Americans of Mexican origin. And they've got this incredibly elaborate constitution written out article by article, setting out exactly how the, the gang is run. The principal problem that they face in trying to recruit new gang members is that each gang member will worry that they will be victimised by other members of the gang if they join. And this constitution tries to get around that by setting up ways in which gang members can report on other gang members if they victimise them too much. It, it sets up a sort of telling mechanism and there's an impeachment process for the boss and all of this stuff. It's, it's really quite elaborate. So in some cases, cartels have got around it that way by setting up these complex rules which mimic the rules used by ordinary businesses or indeed by countries in the case of constitutions. You know, we hear a lot about how drug trafficking is financing terrorism. You mentioned that's the $300 billion industry. Is that an accurate statement? And how is the money getting, say, to ISIS? That is more of an Asian question regarding the heroin business. And certainly in Afghanistan, the heroin business there has long been used by the Taliban, and it's certainly helped to finance them. ISIS is, is somewhat less reliant on drugs. They seem to be more reliant, actually, on the oil business. They've gone around that part of the world taking over oil wells, and they seem to be selling a certain amount of that. They've also got into the business of selling antiquities from countries like Iraq, you know, these priceless works of art. Drugs, as far as I know, is somewhat less up their street, perhaps because, terrible though they are, they do have this twisted code which prohibits things like that. I think they do take that kind of stuff quite seriously actually. So the the idea of ISIS trading in drugs seems to me less likely than the Taliban who mm -hmm. certainly have been doing it a lot. In the case of Latin America, it's less clear to me that there's a terrorist link. I didn't come across a clear one in Mexico. In the past, some of the drug cartels in countries like Colombia have themselves engaged in terrorist-like activities. Certainly Pablo Escobar would often do things like that, the, the famous bombing of the Supreme Court, the bombing of passenger airliners, these were mm -hmm. classic terrorist actions which had a terrorist purpose. They were designed to prevent the government there passing laws like the extradition laws that they were trying to pass. So that's a form of terrorism, but as far as I know, there's no real established link between Latin American cartels and Islamic terrorism. For well, we just have time for one more question, and your family must have been concerned when you said, I'm writing a book on narcotics. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how you did deal with some of these unsavory, colorful characters, and were you ever threatened or at risk? I felt scared all the time, but that says more about me, really, than it does about, uh, does about what I was doing. I mean, there's definitely a risk covering this business. I mean, going to some of these countries and some of these cities you are facing a higher rate of violence than you do anywhere else. The rate of murders back home in England is less than one per 100,000 per year. In, in some cities that I was going to, it's more than 200 per 100,000 per year. I think it's, it's important to make really clear that the journalists who face the real risks, the really serious risks, are the local Mexican journalists. Because it's all very well for someone like me to go and write about this business and then fly off back home to Mexico City or, or to London. It's a very different business for the journalists who actually live in these places and who are known by the people that they're writing about, who know where they live and who know where their families live. And in the past 10 years or so, more than 60 Mexican journalists have been murdered. You know, you see these cases quite often and it's appalling. And as a foreign journalist, I, you know, I have to be 
clear about the fact that the risks that I face are, are not in the same league. Still, I you know I, I await the Mexican tour of my book tour with uh, <laughs> with some some trepidation. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're very glad that you came to Dallas. Our guest today, Tom Wainwright. He is the author of a new book, Narconomics: How to Run a Drug Cartel. We really just touched on a few of the issues that you brought up on the book, so I really encourage our listeners to pick up a copy. You've been listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and the World Affairs Councils of America. Thanks for listening.